I just wanted to let you know before the episode starts that this was the first episode I recorded and I didn't know entirely what I was doing, so Cindy's audio isn't great and that's on me. She did very kindly re-record her reading of the poem. You should still be able to understand the episode and I had a blast with this conversation. I just wanted to give everyone a heads up. Enjoy. Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I am the host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a poet, critic, or reader to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about, old or new, well-known or obscure. We'll talk about what excites us, what engages us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll see how the poem and the conversation turn. On today's episode, I'm so delighted to welcome to the show Cynthia Arya King. Cindy is the author of several full-length poetry collections, including 2021's Continuity, People Are Tiny in Paintings of China. I still love that title so much. Manifest and Futureless Languages. Also the author of the experimental memoir, The Betweens from Noemi Press. And hosts the Last Word podcast, not the one with Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC. Uh, I much prefer I much prefer yours. Cindy, <laughs> welcome to what is the first recording of the podcast. Hi. I am very proud to be your guinea pig. <laughs> oh, good. Um, and it's great to see your face, Charlie. Yeah, it's great to see your face, too. No one will see our faces. No one's going to see our faces. But I love this idea for this show, and I love that we get to talk about a particular poem. And I wanted to just set up real quick why I picked this poem, which is first, I was, I think I was doing something really difficult, like writing a teaching philosophy or something where I was like, this is making me really unhappy. And I think Jeffrey Bean might have sent me this poem. And I loved it immediately. And it's a great poem. A poem hadn't hit me this hard since, you know, the first couple of years of reading poems when I was a teenager. And so one day, I think it might have been for the Dodge Foundation or something, they asked a brilliant question, which is, which poem have you been trying to write your whole life? Oh, that's great. And I said, it's this one. So I'm really happy to be talking about it. This whole time I've been saying Laval. But I went on the computer today to find out how to really say it. So I think during the poet Adam Zagajewski's life, it was in Poland. I couldn't find the Polish pronunciation, unfortunately. I think in Ukraine, which is where it is now, it's Lievu, which sounds like love you. And supposedly the American pronunciation is Lviv, which is hilariously not what it should be. But anyway, <laughs> I'm going to try to say Lviv. So to go to Lviv. By Adam Zagajewski, translated by Renata Korczynski. To go to Lviv, which station for Lviv, if not in a dream at dawn, when dew gleams on a suitcase, when express trains and bullet trains are being born, to leave in haste for Lviv, night or day, in September or in March, but only if Lviv exists, if it is to be found within the frontiers and not just in my new passport, if lances of trees of poplar and ash still breathe aloud like Indians, and if streams mumble their dark Esperanto, and grass, snakes, like soft signs in the Russian language, disappear into thickets. To pack and set off, to leave without a trace at noon, to vanish like fainting maidens, and burdocks, green armies of burdocks, and below under the canvas of a Venetian cafe, the snails converse about eternity. But the cathedral rises, you remember, 
so straight, as straight as Sunday, and white napkins and a bucket full of raspberries standing on the floor, and my desire, which wasn't born yet, only gardens and weeds and the amber of Queen Anne cherries and indecent Fredro. There was always too much of love you. No one could comprehend its burrows, hear the murmur of each stone scorched by the sun. At night, the Orthodox Church's silence was unlike that of the cathedral. The Jesuits baptized plants, leaf by leaf, but they grew, grew so mindlessly, and joy hovered everywhere, in hallways and in coffee mills revolving by themselves, in blue teapots, in starch, which was the first formalist, in drops of rain and in the thorns of roses, frozen forsythia yellowed by the window. The bells pealed and the air vibrated. The cornets of nuns sailed like schooners near the theater. There was so much of the world that it had to do encores over and over. The audience was in frenzy and didn't want to leave the house. My aunts couldn't have known yet that I'd resurrect them and lived so trustfully, so singly. Servants, clean and ironed, ran for fresh cream inside the houses, a bit of anger and great expectation. Brozowski came as a visiting lecturer. One of my uncles kept writing a poem entitled, Why, dedicated to the Almighty, and there was too much of Leavue. It brimmed the container. It burst glasses, overflowed each pond, lake, smoked through every chimney, turned into fire, storm, laughed with lightning, grew meek, returned home, read the New Testament, slept on a sofa besides the Carpathian rug. There was too much of Leviu, and now there isn't any. It grew restlessly, and the scissors cut it. Chilly gardeners, as always in May, without mercy, without love, ah, wait till warm June comes with soft ferns boundless fields of summer, i.e., the reality. But scissors cut it, along the line and through the fiber, tailors, gardeners, censors cut the body and the wreaths, pruning shears worked diligently, as in a child's cutout along the dotted line of a roe deer or a swan. Scissors, penknives, and razor blades scratched, cut, and shortened the voluptuous dresses of prelates of squares and houses, and trees fell soundlessly as in a jungle, and the cathedral trembled. People bade goodbye without handkerchiefs, no tears, such a dry mouth. I won't see you anymore. So much death awaits you. Why must every city become Jerusalem and every man a Jew? And now, in a hurry, just pack always, each day, and go breathless, go to your view. After all, it exists, quiet and pure as a peach. It is everywhere. Thank you. I love this poem. It's a great poem, isn't it? It's amazing. I loved it so much that I sent it to several friends and they were like, I love this poem. I feel like I should know it already. In answer to the question, what is the poem that you wanted to write all your life, that this is now it? Why is this the poem that you now want to write? You know, I said that maybe like 15 or 20 years ago, and I still 
for many reasons, Charlie. <laughs> There's that first grammatical construction, like the first four or five lines, which doesn't start a story. It just puts you in the middle of a dream. It just builds with phrases and it works kind of like a nest rather than a linear construction. And I love that. And it doesn't fall back on any of the uh, cliches of a dream, you know, infinitive period. And then to start the next clause with which is like, I don't know how to express how brilliant I think that is, just that you're asking a question, but you're not going to go and laboriously ask it. And then the confusion, you know, there's like this confusion, if not in a dream. So not only did you start with which, but then you went to if you're starting the whole poem with so many pivots and complexities, but it doesn't feel heavy. It's like you immediately know this is a reverie of dreaming of going back. And also just that sense of abundance, that life was so abundant and so rooted in people and history. And everyone had their part in this machine, which of course does not feel like a machine in this description. But then when it becomes repatriated into a different country altogether, it's a kind of brutality because he can never go home again. He can never go back to that same city. And I think that not only would a lot of people who've had the immigrant experience understand that, I think that in, a, in their own way, each person can understand that even if they've never had to home, you know, there's something in their life that they can't go back to. It must be the past or something like that. Yeah. And it's not just nostalgia either. Like the, the, it's, there's something uh -huh. more complicated going on uh -huh. than nostalgia. I just want to stick with the beginning because it, with those fragments it seems like a risk to to start a poem just to go to la view mm -hmm. which station mm -hmm. for la view and it, it takes yeah. it takes us over 10 lines to actually get to any actual sentence construction that's not a fragment and it feels mm -hmm. like it's difficult to remember these things it's it's like he has to work his way right. into it which for me creates a lot of the tension at the beginning that there is this desire to remember it but there's a hesitation about getting into reverie what else do you love about the poem particular lines particular phrases any techniques well i love those snails that are just hanging mm -hmm. out talking about eternity i really i definitely think of those snails every time i think <laughs> of the poem i love the nun I love the peaches. And I just love the flora and fauna aspect and how it's a city. It's a real place. It has buildings and it has people. But nature through the view is constantly burgeoning forth. Like nature's generosity is also part of the view and end of the memory of it. Just the way that when I was reading it, I could feel like, okay, this is a part that's like a crescendo. This is a part where we're going to drop you into thinking about death and how the city's been taken away. It's just got so much feeling built into it and so much music built into it that it just feels really masterful. I was thinking of this thing that I saw with novelist Sarah Rose Better. She wrote, right, I think it's just come out. I think she said that her life motto was bangers only. <laughs> I kind of feel like this poem is to me one of one of the great bangers of poetry. It's doing all of the things. It's the maximalist kind of a poem. Mm -hmm. And that the way this poem lands is just so amazing with kind of this run of the cutters, the scissors, the pen knives, the razor blade scratch. This guy is never going to say one version of something. There's always multiple versions of everything. So like that guy, yes, he was already writing the, the multiverse in my mind. And it just put it quiet and pure as a speech. It is everywhere. 
Amazing. Some other thing that I kind of want to talk about in this poem is the proper names. I never really looked them up in the past. And then I was like, oh, big, big podcast, must look up all this stuff. <laughs> so I looked up all of these people's names, such as Fredro and Rosowski. You know, each person is a different century of the history and represents something very fierce. And like the first person, Fredro, I believe, is kind of this lush figure who was a playwright and a poet and lived in the view when it was Austrian Galicia. And I think kind of like the good time guy, the situation comedy guy, and then Rosowski is like this very countercultural protest activist kind of person who really studied Nietzsche and Marx and was part of protest against Russian professors back in his time, which was the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Uh, back when he lived there, it was in the Russian, but now we know it's in the current day, it is Ukraine. And I loved that history got in there, not with some kind of grand situation or grand statement, but almost like, okay, I'm going to shorthand history in this massive cornucopia of beautiful things and put in these these men who are also part of, in their way, nature. You know, I love that connection there. And the history of it's fascinating. I looked up, I didn't look up pronunciation, but I looked up the history of Lviv. It was basically invaded by Nazis at the beginning of World War II. And then Soviets mm-hmm. took over and apparently turned it into a very, very strict place. Many of the Jews in Jewish areas were essentially obliterated by Nazis after they invaded again. And then Soviets mm-hmm. took over. And Zagievsky's family left in 45. They were basically ousted by Soviets. What that brings to the poem for me is that he was not even a year old. It's almost like Lviv is not a memory for him. It's a dream before it's anything else. And so one mm-hmm. of the ways he can access it is is that history, even though he doesn't put it explicitly in the poem. You mentioned the, the dream, if not in a dream. There's something both really concrete about the poem and something incredibly dreamlike about the poem. There's so much dense metaphor, and there's the humor of snails converse about eternity, starch, which was the first formalist, <laughs> the Jesuits <laughs> baptizing plants. <laughs> and so it's it's both this incredibly densely physical place and this place that exists on a plane that you can only access through metaphor. Like even when it gets cut, Mm-hmm. It's it's as if scissors are cutting the entire city. There was too much of Lviv, and now there isn't any. It grew relentlessly, and the scissors cut it. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly clear as a referent what the scissors are. It could be a mix of the Soviets and Nazis, I guess, historically. Mm-hmm. But there's so much of that that is concrete, white napkins, a bucket full of raspberries, as if this is some sort of like Nabokovian memory for him Mm -hmm. that he's invoking Mm -hmm. something from his childhood and yet it's so difficult to access you can only access it through comparison through comparison through almost like his imagination you know it would be really interesting to know where some of these images came from like are they things that he saw there are they things that his parents told him about are they just like a fabricated or what well apparently his parents missed the place intensely his father apparently bought as many books about Lviv and maps of Lviv as he could after they had been exiled. Oh, man. Yeah. And so it it seems a little bit like this, the poems attribute to Lviv and in a way attribute to not only what he has lost, but to what his family has lost, which is all the more impressive that it ends on the on a note of hope, quiet and pure as a peach. I, I couldn't 
possibly explain why, but a peach is the perfect thing there. It is objectively the perfect thing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, I feel like the, an obvious move would be to recall cherries or something, like something specific that he's already brought to the poem. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the peach there. And then it is every, everywhere. But I wanted to ask you a question. I don't know if I'm disagreeing with the poem. I just find myself thinking about this again and again. Because you said it's very recognizable to anyone with any kind of immigrant experience and refugee experience. And there's a way in which the experience he's describing is so specific that when he writes, why must every city become Jerusalem and every man a Jew? And then it is everywhere. I found my I find myself at times kind of resisting the universalizing move or wondering about it if it's totally not it's not insincere. It is everywhere, I think, is completely sincere. And the feeling for him in the poem that every city becomes Jerusalem and every man a Jew. I feel like I don't know that that's true. Please feel free to convince me that I'm wrong about it. I just found myself resisting the universalizing impulse, I guess. I think that's a healthy push against the poem, especially I feel like we've come to this moment in in history when, you know, as people who teach poetry in the United States of America, like, we're going to notice that. We're going to be like, what about the other thing? And yes, it's a very, it's a very Eastern European World War II 20th century kind of a poem. Yeah. And Jerusalem as a concept may belong in the 20th century. But I think it is kind of beautiful to want to point to that longing in mm-hmm. people for home. How would this poem seem to Palestinian yeah. person? <laughs> you know, it would it would hit very different, I'm sure. So I think that's worth talking about. I think you're right. And it is a kind Sorry, of, go ahead. you know, there is a certain element of affluence like celebrated in, in this poem of things being fine, things being yeah. peaceful. And I think to me, let's imagine the poem didn't have that line about Jerusalem. I think it would be more likely for people to perhaps feel that the poem was about whatever had been in the past. He has a very specific history type. Everything you say makes sense. And it, it also makes sense that there is a reference to another city, that Lviv is is one touchstone and Jerusalem ends up being another. Part of it is I, I have a frustrating skepticism of any kind of universalizing gesture. <laughs> but I would... I was teaching a personal essay class this summer to adults, and I always say this when I'm teaching personal essays, that the best personal essays give a reader a way in, you know, that there's a way Mm -hmm. to, and not relate necessarily, but to recognize something in their experience. I think Mm -hmm. I said earlier that there's something more complicated going on than nostalgia here, but that moment gives the reader a lot of readers a way in to sort of recognize their own mixed sense of nostalgia and also a sense of loss. It doesn't seem arbitrary to me and it doesn't seem unimportant. And maybe I'm almost certainly would have read this very differently in 2003 than I am in 2023. Mm -hmm. Other little notes about the poem, either particular moments or the view from 10,000 feet about it. Let's see. I don't think I have any particular notes any particular line i do really like and grassnake like soft signs in the russian mm-hmm. language disappear and it's such a good mashup of nature and the whole sense of language as something that comes and goes and changes depending on who decides they're in charge whether it's peacefully or it's great violence but yeah i do i do enjoy thinking about the idea of universality as kind of a mirage that people are using to get the reader in there and that he is addressing the mirage and its brokenness like it's simultaneously being impossible but also it is everywhere like i think that's a really beautiful duality that he's holding in the poem so i think think i'm still really into this poem part of the <laughs> that I'm 
That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, same. <laughs> Very much the same. There's just one other thing that I wanted to note, which is that after it starts off with these sort of fragments, there's a lot of color in the poem, but mm -hmm. it's all compressed into a relatively short space. The green armies of burdocks, the white napkins, the raspberries, amber of Queen Anne cherries, the frozen forsythia yellowed. And then the color pretty much drops out. And I think I'm thinking about this because, and it comes back to what you were saying about history in the poem. World War II, for a lot of people now, me, me very much, it, it exists in a way in black and white. There's this thing about uh, photography from the civil rights movement that we're almost always presented black and white images of figures like Martin Luther King and mm -hmm. Malcolm X. And, but there's plenty of color photography. It's just not there. But one thing I potentially appreciate about the poem is that there's a way in which it moves the view of the past out of black and white. I don't know if that makes a ton of sense, but I found myself just so mm -hmm. noticing how dense it is in the first half of the poem. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a great move on his part to put the colors mm -hmm. sort of in a little chunk rather than kind of trying to bring them up all the way through. You know, he can just let things be the color they are, like the fresh cream and stuff. I think there are many little movements throughout. And I like that you're seeing that as history getting a little more three-dimensional there. Yeah, it's such a great poem. I'm I'm so glad you chose it. I'm going to teach it this fall. I didn't have it on my radar. And now I'm definitely going to teach it, hoping hoping that students have the same wow reaction. Have you taught the poem before? I don't think so. I think it might be like one of those like, this is my package of Oreos. I am. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can teach it now, but I think when I first started teaching, I definitely made a decision not to share like super precious things with students because I didn't know if I could handle it if they were like, oh. <laughs> so I was going to say one thing, uh, there's a poem by John Ashbery called, and when I teach, I'm, I teach quite a lot of uh, women poets, I feel. I feel like I just want to throw that out there since I'm mentioning two different male poets. But the instruction manual by John Ashbery is another poem where you are really hypnotized by the world created in the imagination. And I, I love having students read that poem where the poet is at work and it's very boring and he's looking out the window and then he starts describing Guadalajara and he's never been to Guadalajara. And by the time you get to the end of the poem, you kind of forgot that he's never been to Guadalajara. You just feel like you've been in Guadalajara the whole time and he's making it so beautiful. And then at the end, you're like, ah, snap, he's still at his desk. And uh, I made students write poems about being at work where they started to imagine some other place in detail. And they really got into that. So I'm just throwing that out there. If you have to make students write a poem. That's great. I, I think the imagination is something like students really get behind there was uh, there was one student who said how am I supposed to know what Hawaii looks like if I've never been there and I was I don't know what you're telling you <laughs> like, you're supposed to make it up but anyway <laughs> well now we turn to the silliness so yay first a very important ad break do you have a problem with flies in your death rooms or in your funeral parlors have you been dealing with narrow fellows in your grass there is a solution for you Amherst pest control Call for Emily. She won't answer the phone, but she will kindly stop for you as her notice suddenly is. <laughs> Finally, a humane way to deal with all of those pests. Call 591-1096. That number is fake. Do not call it. <laughs> it may actually be someone's phone number. And I don't want you to bother them with a very silly joke. Now we're to the part where you, you have to play a game and you have to guess. Okay. So this is 
Guess the Poet by Contemporaneous Review. Oh, geez. So I pulled quotes from a bunch of reviews and they begin least specific and they get more specific as they go. You're welcome to guess at any point. Wait, and wait. if you guess wrong. Is this, uh, is this people from right now? Are these contemporaneous poets? 20th century to the present. Okay. And in part because if there are certain kinds of things that are dead giveaways, I've discovered of both time periods and writers, and that's less likely to occur in more recent reviews. I'm, <laughs> this is not actually one you can guess on. I just encountered this one. This is one sentence of a review of this poet's book among a review of 10 other books. Poet writes free verse, whatever that is anymore, <laughs> of no particular note and just and just moves on. Review oh. number one. Hey, Grandpa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whatever that is anymore. Blank's poetry has consistently been one of inner vision, a poetry that is orphic, oracular, and not immediately accessible. Okay, should I be guessing? If you have a guess, you're welcome to throw it out there. You get you get more point uh, the sooner you get it right, I, but the points uh, don't count for anything. Okay, well, my first <laughs> guess would be class. Or that's a good guess. That because is oracular or Ashbury because obscure. Those are both good guesses that are not accurate. One of the things I'm enjoying about finding the older reviews is the way in which if you lift a name out, mm -hmm. they could apply to so many poets, which you, right. you should get a sense you of. You need to up your game, you reviewers. My last guess is uh, Notley. And that's, these are just people that are in my head. So it's really not any comment on my knowledge of contemporary review it is it is not not lee though if it were it would be not lee it would just be lee uh number two <laughs> <laughs> blank writes poems which though not easily accessible to all will be understood as expressions of intense experience she is painfully aware of the anguish others feel and some of her ruthlessly honest statements reveal our basic dilemma between helping and self-concern well ruthlessly honest makes me think of Sexton, not Sexton, though. Sexton is a good guess, too. It's not Sexton. Three may start to get you in the right direction okay, or, or get a sense of what readers are picking oh, wait, up on. Oh, wait, these are all the same person. Yes, these are all the same person. Okay. I'm sorry, I should have made that clear. These no, are no, all no. the same person. Blank's poetry is the kind of poetry that releases its power better in oral delivery than on the page. Her latest book should be read aloud as a strategy for grasping the dense textures testing out the sound effects of image accumulating upon image. Huh. Mm. I have two guesses. And the first guess okay. is Marianne Moore. Okay. And the second guess is Diane Zeus. This is just proving <laughs> to me that like these are all very a pretty loose statement. I find it's very hard to write a review of poems. That's what I learned from doing this. Uh -huh. Um all right, I'm going to read you four and then five together. These poems are anything but quote-unquote literary. They are hard-edged, compelling, and vital. Writer slips gracefully into her various personae and gives a picture of what these women's lives and emotions are. Only after giving this sense of history does she come into her own voice. And then five, from a different reviewer, poet speaks of the Black experience with a rare mm. beauty. She does not avoid the harsh, bare facts, but she probes deeply enough to uncover the love which has motivated them. She is an excellent craftsman. Her voice is lyrical and her eye is sharp. Is it I? No, it's not. Um, That's an interesting guess. 
because she does a lot of persona poems. Mm-hmm. And- this is where I pop in and say what I should have said at the beginning, which is that if if the roles were reversed, I would be mostly lost at this point. Uh, <laughs> and that I'm I'm only doing this so I can feel like Alex Trebek must have felt when he had all the answers. You just feel so smart knowing what you have notes <laughs> for. All right, last one. Um, okay. um, when she loses, I'll give you a hint. This is, review is from the 1970s. Oh, okay. When she loses touch with the authentic sources of her own feelings, though, the wariness of days spent talking on this street corner, quote, at the edge of an indifferent white male estate, coarsens her voice and coarsens her language. Dang it. Is it June Jordan? It's not. That is a good guess. Do you want me to reveal? Is it Gwendolyn Brooks? No. It is not. Okay. Who is it? It's Audrey Lord. No, that was my next guess. Oh, Oh, I'm so close. (laughs) I even I even dropped, mentioned her name earlier to see if that would stick in your head. I, <laughs> I was not planning to do that. I think I didn't know that she did a lot of uh, persona. Like, I don't think that really registered with me that she stands out as a persona type. But yeah, I can totally see that was. I'm not kidding. That would have been my name. Well, it's funny. Yeah, I don't think of her as a persona poet either. And so it's interesting to me to think of the poems of hers I've first encountered and that are better known. And those aren't necessarily the ones that people were focused on writing reviews in the 70s Mm -hmm. and 80s. Impossible game. Sorry about that. (laughs) I love I love the impossible game. Thanks for coming up with it. I originally was going to come up with options, uh, like three different game options. And then I realized how much work that would have been for me. And I'm a fundamentally lazy person and i can't violate that so i just gave you the one game (laughs) thank you very much cindy for being here everybody should pick up copies of the betweens and continuity thank you so much for listening have a good day go read some poems pet some dogs and enjoy something nice to drink thanks for listening bye